Welcome to the Purposes of College Education podcast. Today, we continue our conversation about conversation. We'll discuss why modern colleges and universities emphasize free speech and academic freedom as important conditions to encourage conversation and discovery. I'm joined again by my Yale students, Zadie Winthrop and Claire Mahalik. In the modern academy, especially starting in the early 20th century, the principle of academic freedom has protected professors from being fired for expressing their political views outside the classroom or for teaching controversial theories in their classroom that are related to their field of expertise. Throughout the last century, there's been extensive debate about academic freedom. There's a very interesting set of debates relating to academic freedom currently underway in the United States regarding how the country's racial history should be taught in universities, and it illustrates challenges to traditional notions of academic freedom both from the right and the left. On the right, some governors and state legislatures have tried to limit the teaching of theories or even historical facts about race and also about sexual orientation and gender. These new laws are not limited to elementary and high schools, but are increasingly focused on universities, thus clearly conflicting with the tradition of academic freedom. On the left, some activists tend to equate free speech with offensive speech and have tried not only to limit hate speech, but to extend the notion of hate speech to encompass microaggressions or offensive Halloween costumes. At times, this verges on creating a cancel culture in which people feel a need to censor themselves on a wide range of topics. The question of free speech on campus and how it intersects with concerns about maintaining equality is one of the most vexing issues facing university leaders today. Broadly speaking, I would argue that universities should attempt to create a supportive and respectful environment in which no one suffers discrimination or harassment, but they should also encourage tolerance for the expression of a range of views on challenging social matters, including race, religion, and sex. Otherwise, universities may inadvertently discourage the open conversation that is crucial to the search for truth. Universities depend on encouraging discussion of controversial topics, and narrow speech codes or excessive emphasis on conformity tend to constrain such discussion. In the educational settings you've experienced, how free do you feel to express your opinions? Zadie? I think I feel very free to express my opinions. It's quite clear to me that institutionally, at least at Yale, people are allowed to express their opinions in class and say what they want. I I think that, you know, there are some social expectations that are kind of a different game. Although I think, you know, and I I will say that in, in class, it does actively occur in my mind, how will what I'm about to say land with the people around me? I do think about that. And I think there's probably been an instance or two where I have decided, hmm, maybe, you know, maybe you don't need to say that. But I... I, yeah, I think generally I feel quite comfortable saying what I think. And I also think that my views are kind of generally in alignment with what the socially expected views are, and that plays a role in my comfort. Makes it a little easier, yeah. Claire, how about you? Have you seen experiences where you felt that it was difficult to express your opinion? I also, on the whole, feel comfortable expressing my opinion. If I ever have the urge to self-censor when I'm about to make a comment, that tells me that that opinion is not something that I truly believe and something that maybe I got from my family or maybe something that's expected of me from uh, our current social culture. And I need to do some of my own research or have some conversations um, and validate that opinion and make sure that it's something that I truly believe in, in order to feel comfortable sharing it. So 
But so the, your case of your abortion debate was an interesting one. Do you ever just throw out an opinion that you don't believe just to say, hey, this is an interesting opinion to consider or something I heard on TV or that, that my cousin said to me or something like that? I will definitely play devil's advocate. I think that it's a great way to pick people's brains and get good feedback. How about self-censorship? Do you find that people censor what they're going to say a lot on campus? I think it's a little bit hard to know. Um, you know, someone doesn't say it. How do you know what they were, you know? Um, I, I think that I experience a decent amount of intellectual diversity in my, in my time navigating Yale. The Princeton philosopher Keith Whittington offers a vigorous defense of free speech on campus in his recent book, Speak Freely. Drawing on the classical liberal tradition going back to John Stuart Mill, he explores a number of instances in the past several years where he sees violations of academic freedom or inappropriate attempts to constrain free speech. I'd like to explore a few types of incidents that he discusses. Many of them are challenging cases where the correct answer is not obvious, and as Whittington rightly points out, academic freedom, though referring primarily to the research of a faculty member, is highly relevant also to teaching. As he says, the best teaching is informed by the latest research, and the challenge of teaching at the college level is determining how to synthesize the massive research on a given topic and make it accessible for a non-specialist audience. It would therefore be insufficient to say that academics are free to pursue research on controversial topics, but not free to discuss them in the classroom. And while some conservative critics have decried universities as liberal indoctrination machines, in fact, academic research is mostly guided by the search for truth within the specialized fields known as disciplines. As Whittington writes, Within the domain of their particular professional ambit, most faculty seek to pursue the truth as best as they can in a spirit of open inquiry and disciplinary rigor and to introduce students to that enterprise of discovery and to the fruits of the labor of the many researchers who have likewise embarked on that journey. A broad area for tolerance of, for differences of opinion and willingness to engage with others on difficult topics is, is essential to this notion of education informed by research. Whittington criticizes a number of trends that he sees in recent debates about free speech on campus while not offering what might be called a pure free speech view on all such matters. His broad view is that Respecting all the members of an academic community means both embracing their right to be present and to participate, and taking their ideas and beliefs with the seriousness that they deserve. Respect is best demonstrated by active engagement, and inclusion is best realized by the appreciation of what unites us and by the tolerance of what divides us. In this regard, he notes four areas of current debate, safe spaces, hate speech, protest, and extracurricular speech. In each case, he offers a fairly balanced assessment that emphasizes the importance of respect and tolerance while discouraging censorship. So, for example, on safe spaces, Whittington recognizes the value of warning students about the presence of potentially upsetting or triggering material in a syllabus, but he fears that faculty will avoid all controversial topics for fear of having their courses judged unsafe. He gives examples of students objecting to discussions of terrorism by Islamic fundamentalists or objecting to the presence of campus groups that support the election of Donald Trump. 
and he says these are unreasonable demands from the left for safe spaces. Whittington also notes similar tendencies from the right, for example, when state legislatures threatened to cut funding for a university that assigned a book on gay themes to incoming freshmen. In both types of cases, the demand not to be exposed to competing views, and in particular, the rhetoric that equates disagreement with violence, leads to a narrowing of the possible areas for discussion. One critic comments that the safe space metaphor drains from classroom life every impulse towards critical reflection. Whittington argues that in fact it is okay to have some safe spaces on campus, for example, community and cultural centers where people choose to be with others of similar views or backgrounds. But he also warns that excessive emphasis on safety risks infantilizing students and making them incapable of dealing with the real conflicts of views that they'll find not only on campus, but also, of course, in life after university. Have you experienced places you would think of as safe spaces, and do you find that it's easier to talk about certain challenging topics in that safe space than it is in the broader Yale College campus? I see this in AIA, which is both a affinity group for athletes as well as Christians, so that's a very high overlap for me. I do think that it is a space where I feel more comfortable talking about religion in general because I know that everybody who's coming to this space is also questioning their beliefs or reaffirming their beliefs. I think sometimes we can forget, even within affinity spaces or safe spaces, sort of the still vastness in people's experiences and backgrounds. Yeah, so even like when I visited the house, which is our African-American cultural center, I met people, some of them grew up in the States and came from African-American families, some came from Africa, some were, you know, were immigrants from the Caribbean. And so in any given identity group, there's actually a fair amount of diversity, typically. During the 1990s, when I was in graduate school, there were a lot of debates on whether hate speech should be permitted on campus, and particularly about the use of offensive racial language. In this regard, social expectations have certainly changed in the last generation. On hate speech, Whittington's pro-free speech views are not actually that far from those of critical race theorists of the 1990s. Whittington himself is a First Amendment expert, and he criticizes the view that racist speech should be entirely outlawed but he does support rules against threats and harassment on campus. So he favors some restrictions on hate speech on campus. Nonetheless, Whittington notes the risks of extending the concept of hate speech too far. For example, he mentions a British university that banned a club devoted to the discussion of the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche because Nietzsche was admired by the Nazis. As Whittington rightly points out, speech that unintentionally gives offense to someone on the basis of a characteristic not previously identified by school policy can make a student subject to administrative action by campus officials. Now, it should be noted that the types of actions by university administrators that he mentions may vary. There might well be room for counseling a student about offensive speech without necessarily disciplining the student. While I agree with most of Whittington's views here, I'll note as someone who has played various administrative roles in universities that he tends to blame administrative overreach in these matters. Sometimes he doesn't recognize that the demand for censorship comes not from the administrator, but from students who feel offended by microaggressions or perceived racial or gender stereotyping. The challenge with microaggressions and stereotyping is that a person might reasonably be offended by someone else's use of a stereotype, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the person who used the stereotype should be disciplined. 
It's a common situation that people cause offense inadvertently. Ideally, these kinds of misunderstandings can be resolved quickly, but unfortunately, we get into a situation where misunderstandings quickly get elevated into disciplinary situations or scandals and become very public. What safeguards do you think should be in place to avoid offending your peers in conversation? I have just seen in some of my classes, teachers begin the class with creating norms. And some of those that I have found interesting that seem to be related to the free speech issue has been that we want people to be able to feel that they can say what they are thinking and express their thoughts. And we should give everybody the benefit of the doubt. And we should be aware of everybody, you know, as people, we need to respect people as our peers and in the way that we wouldn't insult someone outright, we need to be thoughtful about what the impacts of our words can have on other people. Um, And I think that's sort of been an interesting way of trying to address some of these questions. Um, I I also think that, you know, I'm kind of interested in this like hate speech question. Um, And I, in one of my classes last semester, I think there was a few instances in which someone said something that I thought was like, oh, whoa, you know, <laughs> like, where did that come from? That was a little out of pocket there, you know? Um, and I I was sort of interested in how I felt that the class and the teacher should respond to that. Um, how I mean, did the teacher respond? Yeah, the, the teacher kind of didn't really respond. Um, and members of the class you know, did. And I I was sort of thinking, do I think that it's the obligation of the teacher in that moment to say something about this? And how do you how do you determine when when it is the obligation of the teacher to say something, when is it not? Regarding protests on campus, Whittington analyzes a series of protests that happened across US campuses in 2015 to 2016. And that sometimes involves shouting down or blocking entrance for outside speakers with views considered offensive. Here, Whittington speaks of the relevance of time, place, and manner limitations for student protests. While students on campus should enjoy the right to protest, most universities limit the manner of such protests in particular to avoid situations in which the speech of protesters interferes with the speech of others, such as a professor conducting a class or an invited outside speaker. Threats to shut down the university or interruption of a class or even a ceremonial or sporting event may seem to be expressions of free speech, but to the extent that they impinge on the rights of others, they are subject to regulation. Otherwise, speakers will be subject to the heckler's veto and can be shouted down. As Whittington puts it, What protesters do not have the right to do is to prevent others from speaking to a willing audience, whether the means deployed to obstruct this speech involves shouting, blowing a horn, or setting off a smoke bomb. Incidents of this type were quite widespread on U.S. campuses a few years ago. During COVID, they've become much less common. It'll be interesting to see how protest evolves in the years to come. I share the view that Whittington summarizes from John Stuart Mill. Mill would have hoped that in our best moments, we would ourselves be willing to engage with and learn from those with whom we disagree most strongly. But he insisted that even in our worst moments, we must allow others to engage with and learn from those with whom we disagree. As Whittington rightly notes, many of the most famous incidents of protest in the middle of the past decade concerned outside speakers, who are actually a relatively small part of campus life and who in any case are not, strictly speaking, protected by academic freedom. Typically, speakers who are deliberate provocateurs, such as right-wing TV personalities, will be the focus of such protests, but student groups have at times objected to the feminist scholar Laura Kipnis, who was 
critical of certain sexual harassment policies or to mainstream political figures like Condoleezza Rice or Barack Obama. A related phenomenon is attacks on student groups, including conservative ones like the Federalist Society and liberal or progressive ones such as Students for Justice in Palestine. Although outside speakers need not have academic credentials and student extracurricular activities are not a formal part of the curriculum, the broad principles that underlie academic freedom are also relevant in these cases. Whittington advocates even-handed treatment of student activities and a relatively open attitude toward outsiders who seek to engage with members of the campus community, while recognizing that not everyone has an automatic right to be invited to speak on a college campus and not every student group will meet reasonable requirements that a university may have for recognition. I find myself largely in sympathy with Whittington's broad interpretation of the role of academic freedom and free speech, but I'm surprised to find that he pays relatively little attention to what seems to me a major factor in the incidents that he analyzes, namely the intertwined development of social media and cancel culture. The massive increase in communication by social media means that statements a faculty member or a student might once have made privately in person to a small group of friends now frequently reach much larger audiences and are harder to retract. And this has been even more true during the COVID pandemic with the widespread use of Zoom. The existence of large social media networks also means that relatively minor incidents often attract huge amounts of attention from across the globe, leading to either upwelling of student protest on campus or massive numbers of emails coming into the university administration from outside. There are many benefits to social media, for example, being able to keep in touch with old friends or share interests with geographically distant people one may never have met. But the downside, whereby relatively minor statements come in for intense focus and amplification, has made the lives of young people more stressful and has put pressure on university administrators to overreact to controversial statements by faculty and students. Cancel culture, the tendency to deem someone beyond the pale of the human community or at least the academic community, likewise thrives on social media. It makes sense to retract honors from those who have committed crimes, and private media companies may choose to cancel contracts with performers or even writers whose views or actions are controversial. But we should be careful not to overreact to cases of controversial speech. I've sometimes heard, though, that conservative students feel more constrained in what they can say than liberal or progressive students might. Uh, have you seen any evidence of that? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think in one of in in one of my sections, there's a student who tends to have more conservative takes and political philosophy, and you notice that they are sort of alone in their arguments, and and they're very intelligent, like make very interesting points. So you know, they people respect them and respect what they're saying. But I, I think that you can sort of, again, drawing this line here between the institutional and the social. I think. From a kind of institutional perspective, everyone recognizes their right to say this. Everybody is appreciating how it's impacting their learning. You know, arguing with them is beneficial to being sure that you believe what you say you believe. And then I think on a sort of social standpoint, maybe you see an occasional eye roll or, you know, if you think about what what is the implications of what you're saying in terms of real people's lives, it, it's a little sometimes it can be challenging. In 2020, a group of writers who ranged from the left to the right published a letter on justice and open debate in Harper's Magazine. They wrote, The free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society, is daily becoming more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, 
censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture, an intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. We uphold the value of robust and even caustic counterspeech from all quarters, but it is now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. Some on the left criticized this letter, perceiving its authors as privileged individuals who felt that their privileges were threatened, and I suppose I might be seen to belong to that category. But I share the author's concern with the rise in censorship and their plea for a culture that leaves us room for experimentation, risk-taking, and even mistakes. You can hear the echoes of John Stuart Mill. The privilege to experiment and to discuss controversial ideas should be extended to more people and not limited in the perceived interest of affirming equality or diminishing conflict. I've always been an optimist, and it seems to me that in the last year or two, we may have seen some improvement in what has sometimes been called the culture wars and a growing space for tolerance of opposing views. I hope I'm right. In any case, in the spirit of John Stuart Mill, university campuses should be places for respect of others and tolerance of opposing views and for experimentation and risk-taking. Unlike elementary or high school, college education is closely linked to the system of research universities in which professors, graduate students, and even undergraduates seek to expand the field of human knowledge. When we talk about truth in this context, we're not discussing private or mystical spiritual revelations, although they might have some place at a divinity school, but scholarly or scientific knowledge. The attempt to understand the world through a rational analysis of Empirical evidence is ancient, but science and scholarship have rapidly accelerated in the modern period. In doing so, they've created a new kind of university dedicated not just to preserving and conveying received knowledge, but to pushing forward the boundaries of knowledge through research and experiment. Academic freedom and more broadly freedom of speech entail conflict. Such conflicts can be particularly intractable when it comes to debates about social and political issues and lead to disputes not only in the classroom, but also in the halls of the college or on the internet or in the broader world. I always tell my students that I hope they'll engage in debates and discussions about political and social matters. In doing so, I hope they will also keep in mind the importance of respect and tolerance for the views of others. Sometimes we become so convinced of the justice or righteousness of our own views that we risk unnecessarily trampling the feelings of others, or more insidiously, creating an aura of soft censorship in which people feel unfree to express dissenting views. A true higher education should allow for an unfettered and respectful exchange of views in service of a search for truth. Thank you so much, Zadie and Claire. This has been a terrific conversation. So delighted to have a chance to talk with you outside the classroom about interesting things you've been working on here at Yale. Thank you so much for having us on your podcast. Signing off. <laughs> yes, thank you for having us. It's been awesome. Um, bye, everybody. This podcast was produced by Belinda Platt with the help of research associate Lizzie Contiras and sound engineer Ryan McAvoy. I'd like to thank my guests, Zadie Winthrop and Claire Mahalik. We'll see you next time.